Hi, this is Nick Whitney, and welcome back to All You Need to Know About European History. This, the 12th episode, is entitled Westphalia, after the region in northwest Germany where the treaty to end the Thirty Years' War was sorted out. The conclusion of this most ghastly of conflicts marked a major shift in the kaleidoscope of European power politics. So the bulk of this episode is really about the fallout from the war and the new pattern of geopolitics which emerged in the second half of the 17th century, and in particular the shift of Europe's centre of gravity as France cemented its position as the continent's superpower, while the rise of states on the North and Baltic seas presaged further changes to come. First, though, the war itself. Only in a religious conflict would men slaughter each other with the viciousness and commitment displayed by all sides in the Thirty Years' War, which ran from 1618 to 1648. Jacques Caillot's 1633 print series The Miseries of War, including the infamous hanging tree festooned with corpses, is a horrifying testimony to what went on. It is reckoned that... When the horrors were brought to a close by the Treaty of Westphalia, some 40% of the German population, the war was fought mainly across the German territories of the Empire, had been killed. But the conflict was sustained by powerful geopolitical forces as well. The long-standing Franco-imperial rivalry and the more recent impatience of the Empire's Protestant princes for greater autonomy, and not just in matters of religion. Indeed, Three decades of constant campaigning scarcely moved the dial on the religious issue, with Westphalia largely reaffirming the Augsburg status quo ante, and the Spanish and Austrian dreams of rolling back the Protestant heresy effectively erased. Geopolitically, however, post-war Europe looked very different, with the supremacy of Louis XIV's France, the growing independence of the German princes, and the increasing prominence of northern European powers, some familiar, the English and Dutch, both of whom prospered by staying mainly on the sidelines of the conflict, and some new, notably the Swedes and Prussians. The progress of the war is too depressing to rehearse in much detail. Prudent and tolerant emperors had largely protected the Holy Roman Empire from the religious conflicts racking France and the Netherlands in the previous decades. But in 1619, the Jesuit-trained Archduke Ferdinand of Austria assumed the crown of Bohemia without troubling with the traditional election, and the Protestant nobles, emulating their Hussite forebears 200 years earlier, signified their displeasure by throwing the Habsburg governors out of a window of Prague Castle. The following year, Ferdinand was crowned as emperor, and in 1620 his armies crushed the rebels at the Battle of the White Mountain outside Prague. As the conflict became generalised across Central Europe, first the Danes and then the Swedes made major interventions. Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden seized much of the southern Baltic shore, and conducted devastating campaigns across Germany, culminating in the Battle of Lützen near Leipzig in 1632, a Pyrrhic victory given that he died on the battlefield. As the conflict wore on, the French involvement increased. France was becoming ever more centralised as a nation-state, 
and the second Bourbon, Louis XIII, and his chief minister, Cardinal Richelieu. Richelieu is sometimes said to be the original Eminence Grise. Actually, that was his own right-hand man, a drab friar. There was nothing Grise about Richelieu, who revelled in his scarlet cardinal's robes, took personal command of the siege of La Rochelle, where rebellious Huguenots were crushed in 1628, built himself the splendid Palais Cardinal, now Royal, in the heart of Paris, and filled it with his extensive art and Roman sculpture collection, founded the Académie Française, and sponsored the Sorbonne, as well as French theatre. Corneille was a favourite. Under his uh, influence, the king brought the French nobility to heel, and expanded France's presence in Canada. When Richelieu died in 1642, he even succeeded in having his protégé Mazarin appointed chief minister in his place. As a Catholic power, it may surprise that France chose to subsidise the Protestant Sweden's entry into the war. But real politic, and in particular France's eternal rivalry with the Habsburgs, trumped religion. And the policy paid off. France was able to advance its frontiers at imperial expense in the Low Countries and the Middle Rhineland, and won the decisive victory over the once invincible Spanish Tercios at Roqua in the Ardennes in 1643. From that point on, the diplomats began to manoeuvre round the generals as the war moved towards its conclusion. The Peace of Westphalia comprised a clutch of three treaties, addressing respectively the Spanish-Dutch, French-Imperial and Imperial-Swedish conflicts. So, in effect, a pan-European peace settlement agreed at an unprecedented pan-European diplomatic congress. Over 100 delegations attended, representing 16 states, 27 interest groups, and an astonishing 140 imperial states, striking testimony to the devolved, not to say atomized, structure of the Holy Roman Empire as it had evolved over the centuries. There were no plenary negotiations, Indeed, much of the proceedings was shuttle diplomacy between the two adjacent Westphalian cities of Munster and Osnabrück, where Catholics and Protestants based themselves respectively. But there was at least one signing ceremony worth memorialising, in one of the new group portraits by the Dutch artist Gerhard Tabor. The religious settlement of this war of religion was largely recognition of what decades of slaughter and destruction had achieved, namely a bloody stalemate. The Augsburg Compromise of a hundred years earlier was reaffirmed. The prince determines the religion of his state, curious regio, aeus religio, but with added tolerance. Calvinism was recognised alongside uh, Lutheranism as a Protestant creed, and individuals were free to worship as they wished in private. Territorial outcomes were more obviously significant. With the statehood of the Dutch Republic and the Swiss Confederacy formally recognised, the Swiss had in practice been quietly withdrawing themselves from the empire into their famous armed neutrality for the past 150 years, and France confirmed in its gains, at the expense of the Spaniards in the Spanish Netherlands and of the Austrians in Alsace and Lorraine. Brandenburg now harnessed with Prussia under the Hohenzollern family, 
secured new fiefdoms along the southern Baltic coast. And so too did Sweden. Nothing brings home the dramatic emergence of Sweden onto the European geopolitical scene as forcefully as a visit to Stockholm's Vassar Museum. It takes a moment to adjust to the dim light of the enormous climate-controlled hangar. When you do, you find yourself overwhelmed by the looming presence of a huge early 17th century warship, seemingly perfectly preserved. It is not just the Vassar's sheer bulk which inspires awe, but the extent of the decoration lavished on it. Here was a flagship conceived as embodiment of a new European power. Of course, the psychological and political impact would have been greater had not the Vassar reacted to the first strong gust it encountered on its maiden voyage by heeling over, admitting water through its unclosed gun ports, and sinking in full view of the assembled Swedish notables and the citizenry of Stockholm. Parenthetically, the Vassar's fate is thus eerily similar to that of Henry VIII of England's new flagship, the Mary Rose, which performed a similar trick in front of the watching monarch in the opening stages of the Battle of the Solent, a naval battle with France just off the English south coast some 80 years earlier. Both ships seem to have suffered from an excessively top-heavy design intended to maximise the vessel's fighting power. The Mary Rose, too, has been recovered from its watery grave and installed in a museum at Portsmouth. But she is a poor thing compared with the Vassar. Scoured by tides and consumed by shipworms, she is little more than a battered half-hull. Counterintuitively, the brackish waters of the Baltic are not good for shipworms, and thus proved very good for the Vassar's preservation. The saving grace when the Vassar turned turtle was that King Gustavus Adolphus was not there to witness the fiasco. He was in Prussia, continuing the successful war against Poland-Lithuania that had added the eastern shores of the Baltic to the nascent Swedish Empire. One ship, more or less, was not going to prevent his subsequent eruption into the Thirty Years' War, and the devastating campaigns across Germany, which established Sweden in the first rank of European powers, and would later earn the admiration of Napoleon. Nordic listeners, chance would be a fine thing, may feel that this history has gone a bit quiet on the Scandinavian role in Europe's story since the time of the Vikings. But in all honesty, for the first half of the second millennium, that role was largely peripheral. The Baltic region's climate did not favour agriculture, and its population was sparse, and made a lot sparser by the Black Death. Only in the later 14th century, as trade grew, all that timber and grain from Poland passing out through the Oresund, the narrows between Denmark and Sweden, on which transit dues could be charged, only then did prosperity arrive. It was reinforced by the Kalmar Union, an arrangement engineered by Queen Margaret of Denmark, which, from 1397 until 1523, saw Denmark, Sweden and Norway, plus the Northern Isles, including Iceland and Greenland, all ruled by the same monarch. Of course, there were tensions. Nobles in all three countries were jealous of their rights. The Swedes and Norwegians resented Danish preponderance. And the Hanseatic League headquartered in Lübeck and dominated by Germans, resisted the Union as a commercial rival. 
But as with so much else in Europe, the cat was really set among the Baltic pigeons by Luther. Swedes were early converts. So Catholic Dane King Christian II, over in Stockholm in 1520 for his local coronation, celebrated the occasion by condemning a hundred of the newly Lutheran Swedish leaders for heresy and executing them. The Stockholm bloodbath. Gustav Vasa led the inevitable revolt, was elected king by the Swedish nobles on 6 June 1523, Sweden's National Day, terminated the Kalmar Union, showed Henry VIII of England how it was done by nationalising the Roman Church's assets, and over nearly four decades on the throne established the Vasa dynasty as a hereditary monarchy. Gustavus Adolphus was his grandson. The Danes, it turned out, were not far behind their northern neighbours in embracing Lutheranism. They too deposed the blood-stained King Christian, though it took another generation and a brief civil war before Christian III, who as a young man had been deeply impressed by Luther's self-defence at the Diet of Worms, could declare Lutheranism the state religion in 1536. Sweden might have gone its own way, but the union between Denmark and Norway endured, and would do until the end of the Napoleonic Wars. And, like Amsterdam, Copenhagen was boosted by refugees and business displaced by the war in the Spanish Netherlands. The 17th century even saw a half-hearted Danish effort to follow the English and Dutch into the Asian trade, but this soon defaulted into the easier business of transatlantic slaving, and Denmark's involvement in the Thirty Years' War amounted to a major bloody nose. Whoever would determine the destiny of Europe in centuries ahead, it was not going to be Denmark. Poland, in the 16th and early 17th centuries, might have looked a better bet for future great power. You may recall that the Polish-Lithuanian Union was formed in 1387, when Polish Queen and Lithuanian Duke married and established the Jagiellon dynasty. That new union prospered, with Krakow and Gdansk developing as major European cities, and Jagiellon monarchs intermittently occupying the thrones of Hungary and Bohemia as well. In the 16th century, a tolerant attitude towards Lutheranism and wise abstention from the developing wars of religion fostered a golden age under two long-reigning Sigismunds. It was Sigismund II who, being without an heir, presided over the conversion, in 1569, of the Union into the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, a new constitutional arrangement which replaced the hereditary monarchy with sovereigns elected by the nobility. A new assembly, or Sejm, further enhanced the power of the nobles. The Sejm's proceedings were weighted towards unanimity, an incentive to compromise, but also, as Poland's later history would show, a recipe for paralysis and a lethal invitation to foreign meddling. Today's European Union, of course, faces just the same problem, as it seeks ways to adapt a principle of unanimity that worked well in a pact of six, but much less well in one of 28. Meanwhile, Russia was a growing shadow to the east. Ivan the Terrible took over the Grand Duchy of Moscovy in 1533, and left it on his death in 1588, the Tsardom of Russia. In half a century, 
a medieval state had been converted into an empire. By conquering the Khanates of Kazan and Astrakhan, residues of that Mongol golden horde to the south and east, he brought the Volga and the northern Caspian under Russian control. Moscow's status was enhanced by the installation of a patriarch and by the raising of Novgorod, the old commercial rival to the north. To secure his own position and earn his soubriquet, Ivan the Terrible purged the Russian nobility and set up the first forerunner of the KGB. For Poland-Lithuania, Russian threat became Russian menace when Ivan invaded Livonia, that's roughly Estonia and Latvia today, to secure Russian access to the Baltic. But a coalition of Poles, Danes and Swedes drove him back, and at the end of the century, Ivan's reign was followed by Russia's Time of Troubles, a 15-year period straddling 1600, when a succession of false Dimitris claimed the throne. One ended by being shot from a cannon on Red Square. During this time, Poland was able to exploit Russian weakness to the point of occupying Moscow for a couple of years. Any triumphalism was short-lived, however, as Gustavus Adolphus began to smash his way round the eastern Baltic, taking Karelia off the Russians and Riga and Gdansk off the Poles, as a prelude to his arrival into the Thirty Years' War. Poland-Lithuania contrived to keep out of that slaughter. But the decades after the Peace of Westphalia would find the Commonwealth confronting an increasingly difficult political environment, as we shall come back to in due course. Finally, while we are surveying the varying fortunes of emerging powers in Europe's north and east in the latter 17th century, a glance at Prussia. Going back a bit, you may recall the Teutonic Knights carved out what was in effect their own state around the bottom right-hand corner of the Baltic, centred on Königsberg, today's Russian exclave of Kaliningrad, which was their key port city, founded in the mid-13th century. Unsurprisingly, the locals never much liked it, and in 1415, the new Poland-Lithuania Union crushed the Knights at the Battle of Grunwald. Their decline continued over the following century, until, in 1525, the last Grand Master converted to Protestantism, wound up the order, and paid homage, as Duke of Prussia, to the King of Poland. By neat coincidence, however, another episode in 1415 laid the foundation stone of future Prussian power. That was the year, you may remember, of the Council of Constance, convened by the Empress Sigismund. Sigismund had only just secured his position after one of those dubious and disputed imperial elections, in which he had received invaluable help from a certain Frederick von Hohenzollern. The get-together at Constance was a good occasion to reward his ally by making him a lector of Brandenburg. That's the area of North Germany around Berlin, so not a million miles from Königsberg. And that Grand Master of the Teutonic Knights, who a century later turned himself into a Polish duke, also a sprig of the Hohenzollern family. Another century on, and the natural cooperation between the relatives in Prussia and Brandenburg developed into a personal union. From 1618 onwards, the same member of the dynasty would be both Elector of Brandenburg and Duke of Russia. 
In due course, we shall see this combined entity becoming a kingdom, acquiring territory to bridge the gap between Königsberg and Berlin, and then from a ever-growing contiguous base, asserting itself from the 18th century onwards as a first-rank European power. The Habsburgs, morphing after Napoleon into Austro-Hungarian emperors, still had plenty of mileage left in them, but the Hohenzollerns would eclipse even them in the 19th century as Europe's most powerful family, until the First World War did for them both. But we must return to our proper timeline, and specifically to the end of the Thirty Years' War. Since it was a Habsburg emperor who had touched off the war by his efforts to suppress the Bohemian Protestants, it was perhaps appropriate that the Habsburgs, both Austrian and Spanish wings, should be the main losers, in terms of power as well as territorially. The German princes, especially but not only the northern Protestants, advanced their ambition of greater autonomy from Vienna, securing the right to make their own foreign treaties, and subjecting all imperial legislation to approval by the imperial diet, or assembly. Spain's decline would continue, accelerated by the two decades of conflict that followed Portugal's decision in 1640 to break up the Iberian Union and reinstate its own monarchy. But the empire, though down, was not out. Its function as a European stabiliser, too big to be dominated but too fragmented to dominate on its own account, would continue. The Westphalian settlement has sometimes been seen as the foundation of the modern international order, in which independent states, equal under the law, commit to respect each other's sovereignty and refrain from interfering in each other's internal affairs. We do not need here to get into arguments about whether that is a realistic description of the modern international order, but it is a slightly odd claim to make with the peace of 1648, given that a key feature was the formal recognition of France and Sweden, as the leading Catholic and Protestant powers respectively, as guarantors of the German settlement, in effect a charter for intervention. But Westphalia was certainly a watershed moment, not least because it would be hard in future to regard conflict in Europe as something that concerned only the protagonists. The idea of a continental balance of power was emerging. And because the medieval dream of one Christendom united under one supranational authority, Pope or Emperor, or the two in partnership, was now clearly dead. The Pope evidently recognised this, to judge by the frankly unholy terms in which he greeted the settlement. Null, void, invalid, iniquitous, unjust, damnable, reprobate, inane, empty of meaning and effect for all time. Hmm. Whilst Le Tout Europe was busy making peace at Westphalia, the English were busy winding up a civil war and preparing to put their king on trial for his life. England had managed to ride out the last century of Luther-inspired turmoil without succumbing to out-and-out religious conflict. Civil war, when it came, was as much about who ultimately called the shots, king or parliament. But it was also what the 21st century has taught us to recognise as a culture war, or war of identity, with parliamentarians drawing their support from the poorer and urban classes and those inclined to the severer strains of Protestantism, 
Whilst the king was backed by the rich and aristocratic, often Catholic-leaning, and rural traditionalists. It did not need to come to this. As we have seen, Queen Elizabeth had imposed a workable religious compromise on the country, and though she died without heir in 1603, renewed schisms were avoided by the imaginative solution of offering the throne to James VI of Scotland, now to become also James I of England. This was counterintuitive given the Scots' long history of alliance with France against England, epitomised by James's own mother, Mary Queen of Scots, whom Elizabeth had executed. But James was, after all, a great-grandson of Henry VIII, and himself a firm Protestant. So much so that, shortly after his accession, Catholic conspirators attempted to assassinate him by blowing up the Parliament when the King was opening its new session. So the English let off their fireworks not on the 4th of July or 14 juillet, but on 5 November, the anniversary of the gunpowder plot, and they burned the plot's leader, Guido Fawkes, in effigy. Helpfully, too, James's Protestantism was of that middle-of-the-road kind that Elizabeth had established. On the one hand, a proper hierarchy of crown-appointed bishops and largely Roman rites, yet, on the other, propagation of the scriptures in the vernacular. James commissioned a new English Bible translation, which in its beauty, majesty and vigour represents, along with the contemporary work of Shakespeare, the apogee of the English language. James also authorised the plantation of thousands of mainly Scottish Protestant settlers into Northern Ireland. But was James really to be trusted by Protestants? Doubting his commitment to their cause, one community of disgruntled Puritans decided to leave for a new life in America. The Pilgrim Fathers made landfall at Cape Cod and founded New Plymouth in 1620. And James certainly showed no enthusiasm for helping his Dutch co-religionists in their various battles against French and Spanish. His dynastic interests were revealed by his son Charles's bizarre incognito excursion to Madrid to inspect the Infanta as a possible bride. It was no improvement that Charles instead pledged himself to Henrietta Maria, Catholic daughter of Henry IV of France. Worse still, James developed an alarming tendency to substitute for papal infallibility the concept of his own. The doctrine of the divine right of kings was flat contrary to the point and purpose of the Parliament, was embraced with even greater conviction by Charles, who succeeded James in 1625, and finally triggered the Civil War in 1642. In 1649, Charles was beheaded in Whitehall, and England became a Republican Commonwealth under Parliament's top general, Oliver Cromwell. It did not take long for Cromwell to dispense with Parliament, style himself Lord Protector, and take up residence in Hampton Court Palace. History remembers him mainly for his bloody campaigns to pacify Ireland, resulting in two-thirds of the island being turned over to Protestant landlords, and resulting also in a strange and enduring Irish suspicion that London may not always have Irish best interests at heart. 
Cromwell pursued Charles's son and heir, also called Charles, into Scotland, whence he fled to exile in the Netherlands, after supposedly hiding up an oak tree. Since his escape involved crisscrossing the country, every third English pub is called the Royal Oak. Cromwell's England may have been more fun than the Taliban's Afghanistan, but not by much. So, when he died, the country was in no mood to accept his son's succession. The upshot was an invitation to the exiled prince to return from Holland and assume the throne as Charles II. Yes, Charles was himself a Catholic, but he agreed that Protestantism should remain the official religion. The Restoration of 1660 marked the start of an untypically cultured and hedonistic period in Britain's national life, as well as a culminating British contribution to the scientific revolution that had begun with Copernicus. For more on that, do join me for the next episode.